0: Well, welcome back to Sheep Stuff You Should Know. I'm Dan Macon up here in Auburn, California, in my really fancy home studio recording today, also known as my kitchen table. And um, I'm joined by a couple of guests today that I'm really excited to to talk to and learn from. Um, we've got Carolyn Weitzel, who's down in the Bay Area, and I'll let Carolyn say specifically what she does here in a second. And Brianna Martinico, did I get it right? Yeah, you awesome. did. Um, who's in kind of the North Bay um, area. Um, and both, both Carolyn and Brianna are colleagues of mine in UC Cooperative Extension and both working in human-wildlife interactions. So not that we ever have any wildlife interactions with sheep, but I thought um, folks that are interested in sheep also would be interested in, in kind of learning from you guys. So Carolyn, why don't we start with you? Why don't you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your program?
1: Great. Thanks, Dan. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Carolyn Weitzel. And for my program, I focus mostly on issues related to coyotes and mountain lions. Um, But I do get quite a few inquiries over some of the smaller critters and rodents and occasionally birds. But as we all know, mountain lions and coyotes can certainly uh, be an issue for livestock producers. So my research and extension program is largely focused. On those two species and educating people about how to best protect your livestock, pets, and property from them and doing research to try to figure out better ways to do so.
0: And where where are you based again? What counties do you cover?
1: Oh, I have a big range. (laughs) I cover seven counties throughout the Bay Area, Uh, but most of my work is focused in San Mateo and Santa Clara counties.
0: Great, great. And Brianna, introduce yourself a little more thoroughly. Where are you based, and and what's your focus?
2: All right, thank you again for having me, Dan. And um, I'm based out of Napa County. Um, I also cover Lake and Solano counties. And I'm quite a new advisor. I just started in July, so. I'm my background is in ornithology, and I studied the ecology of and toxicology of birds of prey in agriculture, and also um, worked looking at pest birds and beneficial birds in different agricultural types. Um, And so, right now, I'm really reaching out to the community and trying to learn about their needs to in order to um, inform what my future research and extension will be. But I know that um, birds of prey can be uh, an issue for certain livestock um, operations. And so, um, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So
0: I want to, I want to come back um, to the the beneficial birds when it comes to livestock production and and sheep production in particular too, because I think there's, there's some things that that I see and I know other other shepherds see out in the field that um, that are pretty interesting, and it'd be good to think about how those things interact a little more. So, with respect to to the work that you all do, it seems to me that rangeland livestock, in particular, has a huge overlap with wildlife habitat that that you can't exclude one from the other, and so. I guess one of the questions from your guys' experience, is conflict just inevitable because we're sharing the same landscapes with, with those wildlife species? Or are, are there things that we can do to make conflict less likely, I guess, and how we approach our production systems? Not a, just a simple question to start with.
1: Well, Dan, I'm an eternal optimist, so... <laughs> While I think there will always be certainly potential for conflict, especially out here in the Bay Area where a lot of livestock are going to be grazed on public lands, where, you know, the land management is just as much focused on protecting wildlife um, as they are, you know, encouraging grazing um, and supporting agriculture out here. Um, So, you know, we absolutely have wildlife and predators using these same landscapes But, you know, as I hope we'll discuss today, there are some ways um, that we can at least try to minimize that risk. And, you know, when we're talking about mountain lions, that's actually a big avenue um, of research of mine that we're going to be starting off in January is, you know, trying to look at different non-lethal deterrents and whether they will be effective for mountain lions on open rangeland and specifically having to do with cattle, you know, calves. So, Mm -hmm stay t- stay tuned for uh, those answers. Um, but certainly for coyotes, you know, we, there has been a lot of research done um, and tools that are available to uh, do our best to try to minimize that conflict that, yes, you know, coyotes are absolutely using these landscapes. There's no doubt, um, yeah. and, you know, mountain lions as well out here.
0: And Brianna, with respect to to birds and raptors in particular, it seems like there's a lot of compatibility between rangeland agriculture and a lot of the raptors that we see in our part of the world. Is that is that just my perception or is it kind of a, a um, complementary type of land use in your opinion?
2: Yeah, I think that especially rangeland and pasture land provides really great habitat for a variety of different raptor species. And it can be really important, critical wintering habitat and breeding habitat. And so um, I think that there is a lot of compatibility. And um, in general, I think the conflicts are really happening once degradation and loss of habitat is um, starting to take place a little bit more when you know these really large ranging predators end up with, um, you know, with less than ideal places to set up shop. And so I really think that, um, um, as we're starting to take into account, you know, uh, conservation of wildlife within these landscapes, there's a lot of opportunities, uh, for, for beneficial birds and, um, using that pasture land and, and as beneficial habitat
0: one of the questions that i've had just watching our own sheep and, and talking to other producers um is is kind of this idea of um i don't know if it's if it the right term is increased vigilance or kind of uh additional stress in, in particular landscapes where there do seem to be a lot of predators but i suspect that that not all types of predation is the same in terms of the the stress that it produces in livestock. Am I right in that, Carolyn, are, are coyotes, do coyotes hunt differently than mountain lions? And, and would we see that manifest itself different in, in livestock?
1: So they absolutely do hunt differently. And coyotes are going to be coursing predators. So they're going to be using more open habitat and run things down. Whereas mountain lions, they're going to be, you know, ambush predators. And so that's where, you know, you always say, you rarely see them, right? Um, (laughs) They see see me more than I see them. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So they're going to be using a lot more of these thickets and bushes. Um, They're not going to be, you know, running down animals. So I think, you know, in terms of stress without having personally delved into the literature, if, you know, there's not, it's a tricky thing to study, right? Trying to measure cortisol levels and, you know, uh, effects on, on calving rates, et cetera. But I would expect there to be more stress associated with coyotes, uh, especially you know if they are running around chasing sheep, even if you have dogs that are keeping them out or a good fence um, you know their presence I would I would guess is going to cause a lot more stress. Um, you know but mountain lions that being said, if they're moving through a pasture, you know, even if they're not hunting, but I'm sure their presence, you know, the livestock will be aware of that and will recognize them as a threat, and that will stress them out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think, you know, potentially more so with coyotes, but I could see that being an issue with both. And you know, wolves are a whole other whole yeah.
2: other story,
1: but there yeah. there aren't currently wolves where I'm at, so yeah. <laughs> I'll leave those aside.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's something I think up in my part of the world here in the in the Sierra foothills people are kind of looking to the north to see what happens it's it's a little closer to home here i think Andy, what about with with birds of prey it would seem to me that they're they're if i want if i had to go i'd want to go with something grabbing me out of the sky rather than chasing me down but <laughs> is there any any research looking at stress where there's birds of prey
2: you know I don't know personally t- uh, to what extent raptors are perceived as predators by livestock, and I'm not super familiar with that. So my intuition is that when they're coexisting peacefully, that it's not a problem in terms of stress of the um of the livestock. But I can't imagine that if there is a giant eagle <laughs> pursuing you or maybe your baby that that would be a very stressful incident but um again from a lot of what we know is that it's very regional and localized and and not um a huge problem everywhere so that type of thing could be more rare
0: and that we talked a little bit about that um kind of getting ready for this this episode too you know i've i the perception is in particular with eagle's Um, in areas where we've got sheep that there is the potential for conflict and yet it it seems like it's really really localized that it's you can't just make those kinds of blanket statements is that true generally for for predators whether they're they're raptors or or terrestrial predators
1: oh how localized the issue yeah yeah um so yes and no in california um mountain lions in many regions, aren't reported as being an issue. Certainly for uh, cattle in San Mateo mm-hmm. County, that's different. We do suffer losses um, due to mountain lions. In terms of sheep, I would—I mean, you may uh, know better than I for mountain lions. I will say for coyotes, certainly. I mean, that is a universal issue, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that sheep producers anywhere where there are coyotes, um, I think, you know, have a high likelihood of having issues with them. That being said, I did, uh, spend some time with a sheep producer in Wisconsin who, um, you know, with his electric fencing, I asked, you know, it's like, Oh, how are the coyotes? And he, had zero issues with them. <laughs> I was amazed. I'm like, wow, a sheep producer. He's not worried about coyotes at all. Wow, <laughs> but yeah. if he didn't have an electric fence, the answer would probably
2: be very different.
0: Yeah, right, right. Is that true of the of the bird species too? That it is very, very localized.
2: I think I think so. From what I know, and I mean, when you think of these um, birds, they are also individuals. So you tend to get maybe one that might end up preferring something that causes a conflict and that could be you know just a single individual so we so a lot of raptors are generalists in in terms of their diet but individuals can specialize and often that would be a localized problem that
0: brings to mind another question um something that we've done we're starting to do more of with livestock is really thinking about how animals learn their grazing preferences and their dietary preferences. And, um, you know, my sheep will eat things that Ryan Mahoney, who's the co-host of this this podcast, his sheep will just walk past. Do predators develop kind of preferences for dietary preferences or an inclination to go after livestock versus wild prey? Is that something you observe?
1: So I personally absolutely believe that I will say research wise and um, for people trying to quantify and truly answer that question, there is some um, literature that supports that and out of South America, looking at Pumas down there, um, Mm. there was a great study um, that did find some individual specialization and Pumas down there. And, you know, I think with bears, there has been some evidence of specialization as well. And, you know, it, it, it's complicated to right. truly study it well and quantify it and to look at that learning, the learning patterns. Um, but, you know, as just an animal person, I absolutely believe that there are, you know, different personalities and that in- individuals are going to, you know, learn um, to go after certain prey types and become better at it. Mm-hmm. And I do always encourage people to, you know, not just look at or think of things as a a population level, but an individual level as well. Um, And I have to hedge my earlier comment about coyotes because, you know, certain, certain, uh, operations can have a you know coyote family living there and not have issues with them and right. if you're one of those lucky producers then absolutely leave that coyote pack alone
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. you, you
1: want them on your property if they're leaving your calves or you know happen to be leaving your sheep alone so i think that's where you know the blankets um you know lethal removal and mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of evidence suggesting that that can often make the problem worse just because you're ignoring that individual variation in behavior
0: i want to come back to to some questions about lethal control um after we talk about non-lethal tools a bit but um i guess when you guys get when, when either of you get a call from a producer uh, first of all i guess the question is do you ever get calls from producers saying hey i just lost a calf or I lost a couple of lambs can you come out and tell me what did it do you guys ever get those kinds of calls from folks
1: yes I do
0: Brianna have you had that experience yet in your in your short time there so far
2: you know being a new advisor I don't think that the whole community knows I'm here yet so I haven't (laughs) gotten (laughs) I haven't gotten abundance of those calls yet but they they will, I they will
0: after sheep stuff, you should know. Yes. know where, where, the, <laughs> where you are. So Carolyn, what, what's that like? What do you what do you how do you approach something like that?
2: Yeah, well,
1: I could give it I'll give a short summary. I can give a whole hour lecture on this. <laughs> um, but briefly, um, when we, you know, are going out and trying to investigate what species is responsible for a kill? Um, and what I always tell people is. You know, first off, we're looking at the you know broader picture. So looking for any tracks, um, looking for any fresh scat around the area. Um, now, keep in mind that those things aren't necessarily telling you what killed the animal. Um, you could have a scavenging situation. But mm-hmm. then when we're examining the carcass itself, of course, looking for bite wounds, and that may require skinning the carcass um, to look under the skin there, seeing what parts have been eaten, how the animal was killed. Um, and you know, it isn't always black and white, but looking at it, you know, considering all of the information you have, um, there are differences in killing behavior between the different species. So you want to think through, you know, what are the potential, uh, species in your area and then look at, you know, was the animal killed? Or was it bitten, um, at the throat, um, the hindquarters, that sort of thing. Um, and that can help you determine what species res- was responsible, which is something that I always recommend people do because it's very, you know, you don't want to be accidentally blaming the wrong animal and mm-hmm. as we'll be discussing, I'm sure, but these different non-lethal um, tactics, they're often quite predator specific. So it's not going to mm-hmm. be helpful to be, you know, putting up things to keep coyotes out when it really was something else that got got your sheep or
0: your other livestock. Will lions scavenge a carcass that something else has killed
1: yes they will okay. um and i mean that's how we often trap them for uh, putting oh, a guest sure. collar on them right we'll put out sure. a, a dead deer and wait for them to come um so while you know they're very efficient hunters themselves if they come upon something you know yes they can absolutely
0: go ahead and eat it protein is protein right
1: <laughs> exactly
0: <laughs> <laughs> So. <laughs> Kind of transition into to some non-lethal tools, but Brianna, one of the things that I've observed where we lamb and we we lamb out on pasture, so um, it's it's wide open to the elements. I mean, we've got shelter and that sort of thing, but we're we're out in the elements. And I will notice um, as soon as we move to fresh pasture, we'll see vultures come in and start to clean up afterbirth and and all of that and that would seem to me to be a pretty effective way for one scavenger to beat the other scavengers that may also be predators to the punch next to our sheep but are there some other things that that birds do in terms of kind of compatibility or or benefit in livestock operations like this that that we ought to be thinking about
2: um yeah, so I guess one thing that comes to mind is that most raptors are consuming rodents, which mm-hmm. can be a problem. Um red-tailed hawks and golden eagles can specialize on ground squirrels, which I know can create a lot of problems in rangelands. And so yeah. they can be um consuming some of those pest species that kind of interfere with livestock operations.
0: Yeah.
2: And um Yeah.
0: Are there some things that we can do as producers to, uh, ground squirrels are a huge issue right now in the foothills, to encourage more raptors um, in areas where we've got ground squirrel problems?
2: Yeah, depending on what the landscape is already like, um, you could increase the um, perching substrate for raptors. You can if you have a wide open landscape, you can add some artificial perches to. Mm-hmm. You can attach those pretty easily to fence lines or um, something like that. Um, trees are natural perches, so you don't necessarily want to, you know, do that next to existing trees and stuff. But it can really raptors really take it. Always take advantage of a good perch, and so by providing some sort of thing, and it, you know, they could be made out of a variety of materials, but Providing something that's the tallest point in a given area can really focus raptor hunting yeah. and attract raptors into um, target that or prey in that area.
0: And I, I, I'm wondering, are are most of the raptors territorial? Are you? Are you? Is there a within a set area? Is there only so many you can attract with? That
2: yeah. Population? So. Yes. Different raptors have different degrees of territoriality, and it's going to vary by season. So during the breeding season, eagles, red-tailed hawks, great horned owls, they're going to be very territorial and likely exclude other raptors from being in the area. Um, One really great predator of gophers and voles not sure how much of a problem that is in livestock operations though are barn owls and they Mm -hmm. are not Mm -hmm. very territorial and they can get um, their numbers can get in pretty high densities if you provide uh, nest boxes Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and they um they just are really really voracious predators and can be a really beneficial and sort of an integrated pest management toolkit
0: we we see barn owls around here not as much as when we were in the valley but we do see see barn owls occupying um lots of space here which is really cool it's really fun to see them in terms of of other kind of non-lethal um tools you know what one of the the things that we've tried to think about in our operation is kind of when are we vulnerable um versus when the predators are lacking Natural prey, and I'm not sure we really think that through very well. It seems like um, there's trade-offs there. But but what are some of the things, kind of from big, a big picture, that a producer could think about in terms of of uh, coexisting and um, setting up an operation? Does that make They're sense. Are looking
1: for different like non non-lethal deterrents or fencing?
0: Oh, more more just you know, are there some things? before you even start raising livestock that if if predators are an issue that you maybe want to think about in terms of lambing season or calving season or, or where you calve versus where you you graze dry cows are there some things like that that can help eliminate or avoid some of that conflict
1: right so in terms of seasonality well first off having a breeding season um, it's going to be important, and that seems to be, you know, very common in the U.S. My prior work, I um, worked for many years in Southern Africa, and some of the regions um, over there where I was working, there weren't defined breeding season, mm-hmm. um, which meant that you know you're all the time having some calves or lambs that are at risk. Yeah. So certainly having a first off having a breeding season, and then. You know, ideally you want to time it to where there's going to be a lot of wild prey, but that being said, there are so many other factors that are going to go into choosing your breeding season that uh, I'm not sure how feasible that truly is going to be. You're going to need to, you know, look in your region, um, in terms of, you know, the, the for available forage available water, all of that good stuff. Markets
0: Um, where, when you can sell where you can sell (laughs) all those things. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. But I think, um, your point of where to calve or where to land is a really great one. And if someone is, you know, either they have a really large property themselves, or if they're rotating livestock between different public lands, um, thinking that through, you know, ideally you're not going to want to have calving or lambing in these, you know, really hilly, varied terrain with lots of bush, where it's going to be very hard or much harder for, you know, the moms to be able to see um, potential predation mm-hmm. and also will make, you know, other tools such as livestock guardian dogs a little bit less effective. Um, think through, you know, if there is an area where it'd be easier to erect temporary, you know, electric fencing or fladgery, um versus areas that it's going to be really hard to put that mm. up. Um, so just trying to take that into account, I think, uh, would be really helpful and with someone you know starting out and trying to decide where they're going to have um the animals at what time of year.
0: How do you how do you suggest somebody start thinking about the non-lethal tools that are out there, the coexistence tools? Is there a one size fits all approach or or how do you when you go talk to somebody, either one of you go talk to a producer, how does that conversation start?
1: Uh, there's definitely no one size fits all. I wish, right? <laughs> it's always going to be a lot more complicated than that. But I typically start out by just laying out what the different options are, um, and the producer is going to know better than me what's going to be feasible for them in terms of cost, you know, labor, um, you know, how often you're going to have to check said tool, etc. Um, but first off, you know, I always encourage people think through the economics of how much you know, what the value of your losses is, right? Does it make sense to be investing in these different tools um, or is it not gonna be, you know, economically make sense for that? Um, But certainly when we think about the different tools, fencing is a big one, um, especially electric fencing if possible and electro net fencing in certain situations can be incredibly helpful. Livestock guardian dogs, I know you've talked about those on your (laughs) podcast before. I'm happy to go into more detail about (laughs) them. Uh, but you know, there I have to say, warn people, you know, the barking, consider your neighbors. If you are close by um, and you're gonna have people who aren't happy about a dog barking at night, that is definitely something to consider. Um, some of the other tools that you know, aren't as common out here in California, but, you know, things that I'm certainly going to be looking at more in my research are flattery and turbo flaggery. And hey, what, what that is, or what, have you talked what, about that before?
0: What is flattery and turbo flaggery?
1: Okay, so flaggery is where you have um, these little flags, that just um, fabric, pieces of fabric, typically bright red, uh, that you're going to wrap around you know, a fence, or you can even just do a piece of wire. Um, and the idea is you surround the animals. So the pasture with this flagry, and it's going to just be blowing in the wind and, you know, the movement of it, um, it has been shown, you know, with canids to prevent them from wanting to cross it. They're not sure about it. Um, and so, you know, some research has been quite effective. And then turbo is just, you're placing it on elect, an electric line. Okay. Um. So okay. the animal, if they touch it, then gets the zap and it's, you know, reinforcing that they don't want to cross um, this visual barrier. And if you're trying to prevent coyotes versus wolves, you're going to want to space the distance between the flags differently. You
0: know, there oh, okay. were. Okay. Uh, and probably lower coyotes. to the ground, running them a little lower to the ground too, or is it the same?
1: Uh, you know, I don't. No, if it is necessarily required to be different height okay. for coyotes okay. or wolves, I'd have to double check that. I just know it's the width for yeah. sure. You want it to be different. Yeah. Um, and we're gonna see if you know, mountain lions also have any resistance to across that kind of barrier or not. Um, but certainly, so yeah, flaggery, then you know, in some areas, fox lights. So these are lights that are gonna be quite bright, um, intermittent lights. And, you know, in some areas, those have been shown to work great in other areas, the animals don't care. So again, um, you'll, you might, may have to test a few things to see what's going to work on your property. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see what, what have I missed Brianna? <laughs> there, uh, there, there are different ones and I always encourage people to to try them out, but you know, if you're having to buy the, the supplies yourself, I know that can get easier said than done. Um, Certainly,
0: Carolyn, you raised a, a point about kind of looking at the costs versus the benefits, and and I'm struck, Brianna, by some of your work trying to encourage raptors to come in for some of the IPM benefits. Has there been work looking at the the economic trade offs um, of you know investing in raptor purchase or barn owl houses versus um, avoiding other expenses or costs. How does that pencil out?
2: There has been some, not there, there has, yes, there's been some, not a whole lot, and there's definitely room for a lot more research in this arena. Um, but what we, there are some studies, and it's also definitely going to vary by case by case, whether or not Hmm. these results actually carry over to, you know, a system that you're dealing with. But, um, there has been some promising studies showing that by promoting beneficial raptors for rodent pest control, it can be cheaper to maintain and um, kind of provide these nest box networks and raptor perches than purchasing and applying rodenticides. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also, you know, the sheer number of rodents that barn owls can consume it has been, you know, evaluated or estimated to be, you know, it can be as much as 220 pounds of prey per nest per year. Wow. That, that's thousands, thousands of rodents per nest. So in terms of um, equating that to actual um, economics, it hasn't been done much. Um, there, There's also just studies showing that when that infrastructure is available, those, those, um areas can have higher predation pressure especially during rodent outbreaks
0: mhm mhm so you're drawing more more other predators in mhm yeah the other thing that that occurs to me and we've had this conversation with landlords at some of the places we lease um, if i've got guard dogs with my animals and i've got herding dogs running around with me i'd really prefer not to have rodenticide or other kinds of poisons placed out to deal with some of the other pests, and so it's kind of an integrated system, right? We're we're able to use the guard dogs safely because we're also trying to attract raptors that can control the the rodent pests. Which I, I hadn't put all that together before, but that's an interesting way to think about it. I want to get to guard dogs because that's and just have a minor interest in guard dogs and and Carolyn. Does as well, and, and lots of experience. So to preface this um, for our listeners, Carolyn and I have been collaborating on some research looking at guard dog behaviors and um, both kind of what happens with predators in in the environment, but also the non predators and whether there's a cost to using guard dogs for some of the other wildlife out there. So, Carolyn, my question is: in doing all of this in the last couple of years. Has there been anything, anything in what we've done that surprised you, or what we found that has surprised you about guard dogs and the environments we're looking at them in?
1: Oh, good question. Um, gosh, you know the probably the most interesting thing. The first thing that comes to mind was at our study site out uh, near Truckee in the Tahoe National Forest when we had a ewe die of you know other causes of. Um, some kind of disease likely. Um but we were able to put the game camera up on the carcass and just looking at the fine scale overlap between coyotes, mm-hmm. black bears, herding dogs and mm-hmm. livestock guardian dogs. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. seeing uh you know them all within minutes of each other in uh, some cases, you know, being in that area. Yeah. And I honestly was impressed that the dogs, none of the dogs were injured, uh, knowing that they were right there with the black bears. Um, and keep in mind for the listeners, uh, this carcass was very close to the rest of the sheep bedding grounds and there were yeah. no other sheep losses. And I think that really was a testament to the effectiveness of LGDs. Um, and the fact that we know there were black bears and coyotes, you know, within a few hundred meters of those bedding grounds. Yeah. Um, and being attracted there, because, yeah, you know, and we we're thinking about non-lethal deterrents. Something I forgot to mention earlier that people often encourage is removing carcasses right. to not act as an attractant. Um, and this, you know, certainly was evidence of how much uh, predators <laughs> will be attracted if you keep the keep a carcass there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and I I think if I'm remembering correctly, I think the LGDs went out. They they pushed everything else off of that carcass.
0: I think, yeah, it seemed like that's what we, what we picked up in the, in the photos. And it, it also, you know, one of the questions that, that ranchers have for me about guard dogs and about some of these other tools is if I'm, if I'm using a guard dog, does that mean all the coyotes are going to be at my neighbors killing their sheep? And what that kind of seemed to suggest to me anyway, was that it's more of a disruption than a displacement the the predators are still around they're just they they change what they prefer to eat if there's something that's discouraging them from eating on a yes, sheet that, that's a
1: great point dan and i mean we're still in still analyzing yeah. the data but just preliminarily you know there wasn't a big difference in the number of coyote images that we captured before <laughs> during or after um the lgds were present and we got plenty of photos of coyotes you know within a few hours of getting yeah. photos of sheep in the LGD so the coyotes certainly were still there yeah um yeah that's a really great point
0: what um what have you noticed and I want to want to come back to something you said rihanna too um about guard dogs and and birds i've noticed that our guard dogs do notice um, birds, but I don't know that that's universal. Have you have you seen some of both, Carolyn, in your experience?
1: So honestly, I've never personally witnessed um, LGBs, you know, noticing birds are going after them, but I've certainly talked with producers who, you know, the dogs are incredibly effective at mm-hmm. protecting the animals from birds. So, you know, spoke with Poultry uh, pasture poultry producer um, who uses LGDs to great effect um, to protect against golden eagles and hawks, as well as some other producers um, who you know, in other states where black vultures are a big issue. Mm-hmm. And those producers, you know, in their experience found there is a difference in dogs. Some dogs look up and other dogs don't. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so yeah. if birds of prey are an issue for your particular um, operation, you may need to go through a few dogs before you get one that realizes they need to look up and that, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. that the threat is coming from above. It's not just at their their eye level.
0: And probably not something you can train a dog, right? No. It's, it's got to be instinctive. Yeah. yeah. Rihanna. what about, um, we've talked about good birds. Are there some some problematic birds in agri in livestock settings in particular that, that, uh, we th- need to think about a little bit.
2: Yeah, I would definitely say that most hawks are going to be too small to really have negative interactions with things like sheep or goats or, or, um, or raptors or sorry, or, um, cows, but, um, I think that there is a growing concern over um ravens and crows interacting Mm -hmm. with um newly born or newly birthed lambs um I don't know much about the topic and I hope to learn more but I but that could there's potential for negative interactions just with any sort of animal that can't you know, protect itself Mm -hmm. or mother's not being attentive to it. Um, In some states, especially where um, livestock operations overlap with areas where eagles live in higher densities, there's definitely potential for, you know, localized conflicts to happen there. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think that I think in general, I think there's kind of like, there's, you know, to any predator, there's going to be a beneficial aspect in terms of controlling pests. But then at the same time, you know, there's a potential for, you know, a lot of economic damage if mm-hmm. that is, if they are targeting livestock. So
0: are you, on. are either of you guys familiar with um, a, a woman from Colorado State by the name of Temple Grandin, done a lot of work yes. on livestock yeah. behavior? I I once got to speak at a uh, workshop that she was at. And she's, we've all advocated that we need do- more docile animals, right? That's going to reduce stress on the animals and stress on producers. But she said something that I found really interesting, and I think I've kind of observed this with our sheep, and I'm wondering about the bird conflicts with this. In selecting for docility, we may have, have deselected for maternal ability um, and for protectiveness. And I wonder if some of the issues that we see with predators and, and very newborn animals has to do with that kind of maternal protectiveness that we seem to have selected away from. I've got a ewe that turns into like this possessed demon as soon as she drops her lambs. She's actually run me over and stepped on me when I'm trying to process her lambs. And I, I wonder... <laughs> What she would do if a crow came after one of her babies, you know, if she'd be more protective. Um, But not, not that that needs an answer. It's just a curious observation that I think may have more to do with it than we realize.
1: Oh, absolutely. And we, you know, carnivore biologists, that's something we consider too, is, you know, do having, you know, certain cattle breeds that may be more aggressive and more willing to confront a predator. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think they're trying that in South America with for Puma and Jaguar, um, mm-hmm. but you know, it's a little more complicated because of course, uh, depending upon what you're raising livestock for and the price market price, um, is going to you know vary depending upon the breed. Yeah. So they're yeah, all, you know, it's, it's,
0: all not trade-offs. always
1: so simple to just say you should get a more aggressive breed.
0: <laughs> yeah, and having been chased over the top of a corral fence by some of those aggressive cows, there's there's other costs there too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and
1: I don't know for sheep if there are some breeds that <laughs> are a little bit more aggressive or not. I mean,
0: <laughs> certainly more flighty, definitely more flighty okay. sheep. I I think I may have told you guys this story before, but the first sheep that we bought. Um, I bought 12 Barbados sheep and when we went to pick them up they had like eight and a half foot high fences which we assumed was to keep the predators out and we learned later it was to keep the sheep from jumping out oh my gosh (laughs) we got them to got them to where we were going to unload and the first two jumped over my head (laughs) and disappeared in the brush and for like three years there would be people that would come out of the american river canyon near where this property was saying there's there's wild bighorn sheep down there in the canyon no those are the sheep that escaped from us they survived for three years I'm
1: gonna say maybe uh <laughs> i'd be curious to witness how they would respond to a predator Maybe <laughs> the odds are a lot yeah lot higher
0: yeah a little different little different That was pretty funny um gosh there was something oh I know what I wanted to ask both before I ask this question another question for you Brianna about birds we see a lot of resident Canada geese um, particularly in our irrigated pastures this time of year when there's no livestock out there and it seems to me I I should ask the range people how many animal unit months of forage a goose can consume but is that an issue that that or is it a perceptive perception on my part that that it can be a conflict and if it is a conflict what are some things i could think about doing to to deal with it
2: yeah i've definitely heard that happening as well for different um livestock producers and their irrigated pastures and you know it can um Geese can be really efficient in you know nibbling down with their to the very bottom and consuming a lot of of forage with the with their beaks. Yeah. Um, and so, I think that keeping the geese kind of, I guess, things that you could think about doing would be to kind of actually increase predation pressures in those different um, mm. pastures. So having um, trees or other things nearby where predators can hide and ambush their prey or perch and, um, you know, survey the land and and hunt prey that way Mm -hmm. could definitely help there. I get a lot of questions about lasers and the use of lasers for things like deterring geese from grazing in a field. And, you know, I haven't looked much into it myself, but, um, I know that they can be really expensive, and Mm -hmm. so I can't really vouch for the efficacy of using a really expensive a piece of equipment like that. But it's definitely something that I'm interested in investigating in my program, and um, being able to kind of have better recommendations (laughs) for that. But um, you know, geese are going to be really comfortable in wide open areas where they don't perceive the threat of predation. So that's one way that um, that's the main way that I could think of to reduce that problem, but also, yeah. So people, also people or, you know, dogs or other things can also reduce, you know, or can also increase their feeling of, um, predators nearby.
0: I'd be interesting to kind of make note of whether we see geese when there's livestock guardian dogs around. Um, cause I, I know that, uh, Julie Young had been doing some research on bonding dogs to a place instead of a, a group of livestock. And I think that would be the challenge with with guardian dogs. Um, they may get bored waiting for the geese to come in and cause other problems. Um, so, a question for both of you about non lethal tools kind of generally. Um, and this question I get a lot from producers, from ranchers. Is there any relationship in your? Experience between the efficacy of these non-lethal tools and the ability to use targeted lethal control um, on a, a specific animal that that you may know is responsible for depredation. Does does it have any effect on the on the ability of those non-lethal tools to work if if non if lethal is on the table?
1: That's a great question. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, I will say where I'm based in the Bay Area, certainly, um, you know, lethal control for mountain lions is not on the table.
0: Right. right. Um, it's not here up- either. Yeah. yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. And depending upon, you know, where you are in regards to different city rules even um, may not be an option for coyotes either. Right. I will say generally, um, you know, if someone's considering lethal control, if you, what's always what's tricky is that is knowing whether that predator, you know, it's a once off, um, right. or if it truly is, you know, a repeat offender. Right. Um, and you know, if it's just a once off, then lethally removing that animal isn't going to have a really big impact, most likely, Um, but you know, if, if it is a repeat offender, then potentially that will have an impact. Um, but always keep in mind that whenever you lethally remove an animal, eventually a new one is going to move in Mm -hmm. and take over that territory. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if the coyote or mountain lion was living on your property before, that means it's suitable habitat for the next one.
0: Right.
1: Um, and so You know, but are you, you know, for that period of time, decreasing um, the likelihood of issues? Maybe, but maybe the next one that moves in is going to be worse, and it's going to be, you know, really, really hard to lethally remove, right? Because there's absolutely individual variation, and you know, catching very often oftentimes, so you know, is the effort and expense you may go through to lethally remove really going to pay off? When I would regardless still recommend you do the non-lethal ones Mm -hmm. um, because do you really want to wait to start losing animals um, before taking action Uh, or, you know, every, you know, I would never uh, recommend just trying to fully eliminate predators from your, (laughs) from your land. Right. I mean, (laughs) besides the biological importance of them, you know, species like coyotes, I mean, you're, you're not going to get rid of all coyotes. (laughs) So, you should still if you're having coyote issues i would absolutely recommend uh the non-lethal ones but you know is there evidence of pairing the two increasing the efficacy you know i'm not sure that's been widely studied i i think there was some situation with urban coyotes mm. might have just been anecdotal. Um, I feel like I've read about it. Some was it Colorado, but somewhere where, you know, they were having issues with coyotes becoming habituated to people,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and they went in and I think just killed one, you know, lethally removed one out of this park, and then the problem fully went away, and the other coyotes, <laughs> for whatever reason, started kind of respecting space. So, you know, what the mechanism behind that was, I don't know, and I don't think anyone knows. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I can't discount that perhaps some lethal removal may, you know, change other individuals' behavior, but you know, I'm not sure. I wouldn't necessarily bank on that.
0: Yeah, right. Right. Brianna, any any experience or or perspective on that question? It's a it's a tough question to answer, so
2: Yeah, for birds of prey, lethal is typically Off the table, only in um, certain circumstances will permits or um, actions be taken to um, relocate birds Mm -hmm. of prey and often to have those sorts of things take place a lot of, um, demonstration of going through and showing that none of these non-lethal techniques have worked. Mm -hmm. Um, so maybe that might happen if there's like a particularly problematic individual. Um, but, but birds are pretty protected by federal law and, um, aren't aren't readily issued permits for lethal control so non lethal is definitely going to be the way to go for that um i do know that other birds like crows and ravens are really big agricultural pests there are some programs around the country to remove those from certain areas but to what extent that happens after or to prevent issues with um, livestock and things like that i'm not Sure. So um, definitely keeping our non-lethal tools in our toolkit is is really important if we're having conflicts with with
0: birds. Yeah. Yeah. What do you guys think is kind of the next front frontier for, for looking at these issues? Are there some are, are do we know all the tools already or are we going to learn more as we learn more about both predator and livestock behavior that maybe there's some other things we can try?
1: Oh, I think there's still a lot that we have yet to, to figure out. Uh, first thing that jumps to mind where it's new and it hasn't been widely tested is the um, painting eyes on oh, the yeah. of livestock. Yeah. Um, that was shown to reduce uh, risk of predation over in Botswana. Um, and I mean, you know, so maybe we'll be able to test that out here in California as well.
0: And it was big cats that they were worried about.
1: Yes, in that it was African case, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: So I think, you know, it's all about being creative and trying to think through, you know, how these predators are perceiving their environment and, you know, trying to better understand what leads them to make certain choices and hunt where and what they do. And I think as technology improves and, you know, we're potentially better able to understand the behavior, you know, both of livestock and predators, then, uh, that can open, open some doors for, uh. Things to try to test.
0: I've thought a lot about kind of rancher paradigms when it comes to these kinds of things. You know, the first time the guard dog causes a problem with with your lambs, if you're not convinced guard dogs work, you'll give it up. Or the first time the electric fence fails and sheep get out, you'll say this is too much work. Are there similar blind spots for People in the wildlife profession, when it comes to to working with livestock producers, in terms of paradigms, um, are there some things that that maybe we who are in the livestock community can do to help educate folks um, within the wildlife community about some of these issues? Hmm. Uh, perhaps.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I would think, and certainly in my experience, you know, as a someone approaching human-wildlife interactions from you know wildlife background and conservation background, I know I have learned a lot and still have a lot more to learn about livestock production Mm -hmm. because they're so intertwined, right? And if you're trying to help someone protect their livestock, it's critical that you understand all of the aspects that the producer is having to think through um, and what their thought process, process is in terms of, you know, forage, breeding calendar, and how it's related to market, you know, or market values and what all goes into that and the different costs associated mm-hmm. with producing livestock. Um, and, you know, I think just being able to, you know, understand the, the farmer uh, producer perspective is mm-hmm. going to be really important and working together. Um, and, you know, some people are going to be more open to trying new ideas than others. And I think just trying to remain positive and, you know, help where you can, um, you know, if they're open to trying something, then absolutely giving it a go, but maybe you just have to loop back around with someone who may not be quite as open and maybe, um, They'll they'll change their mind in the future, but I think you know just trying to to really understand things from the producer perspective is yeah. is very very important in this line of work.
0: Well, I I think as as kind of somebody with a foot in both worlds, it's also really valuable to get to spend some time with people like you, the two of you who see things in wildlife that I've never even noticed before, and I think. That's that's why it's exciting to have these positions in extension, because um, I think you guys are, are able to span those boundaries a little bit better than we've ever been able to do in the past. Um, I think that's really important. Any any uh, last thoughts about um, any of this? Any Anything that that I forgot to ask you? Either one of you.
1: Ooh. I mean, I would just encourage people to, you know, to be willing to share their experiences with extension professionals or wildlife professionals working in your area, uh, because you know, there's always something more that we have to learn and we don't even know what someone's issues may be until we hear about them. And certainly thinking about livestock guardian dogs and sheep. I mean, I've learned so much talking to different producers and they'll be like, you know, I have four dogs and this is what the coyote behavior is. And I'm still yeah. world duties and I'm still having these issues. Um, if I wasn't hearing that experience, I would never know that that's a problem and how can we, you know, all right, if, four LGDs isn't enough. And, you know, what are, what are the coyotes doing? What else could we, um, think about to add to that operation, uh, to try to, you know, either make the dogs more effective, or we just need some other tool to try to impact Mm -hmm. coyote behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, so just encourage everyone listening, um, you know, us wildlife biologists, we're, Hopefully, if you're here with uh, open ears and your experiences can help inform what we
2: should be making uh, suggestions about. Cool.
0: cool.
2: Yeah, I definitely agree with everything that you just said, Carolyn. and um, I look forward to, you know, learning more throughout the um, next few years of my career and being able to, you know, actually, Um, work at this kind of interface between um, livestock and agricultural producers and wildlife. And and I really hope that can, you know, produce like win-win situations for everybody where um, I think definitely increasing conversations across the table and learning about these systems can definitely help me to understand how I can help and, and be more impactful with my work. So.
0: That's both really good points, really good points to for producers to reach out and, and establish those connections. One last really, probably the most important question I'll ask the entire podcast because of the time of year it is, what is on your holiday table this year? What's the big meal going to be? Brianna, you get to go first.
2: <laughs> well, typically... Um, Coming from an Italian American family, <laughs> we do a lot of courses, but it typically will include pasta, lasagna, or um, and some sort of roast and veggies. Lots of um, treats like cannolis, pizzellis, and mm. lots of cookies and pies to top oh, it off.
0: Man, <laughs> now I'm getting hungry. What, what no, I
2: want an invite to your.
0: Yeah, what, what time should I be there?
1: Amazing. <laughs> we start early. So we'll be there by two o'clock.
0: You got a lot of food to get through. You got to start early.
1: Oh, fantastic! Sure. Um, <laughs> I mean, I feel like there's a lot of pressure to say lamb. Oh no, no,
0: no, 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 no pressure.
1: Uh, no we are pressure. going prime rib this year.
0: That sounds very good too. Very good we uh let's see so far on the podcast we've had only only one um lamb meal planned for for christmas dinner so that's good That's good save it for new year's
2: <laughs> that's right
0: <laughs> <laughs> well thank you guys this has been really really fun thank you for for taking an hour out of your day and and uh